Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're just hours away now from the funeral in London, and we're rejoined by Ben O'Hara Byrne, host of A Little More Conversation on the Chorus Radio Network. Ben is also the former London Bureau Chief for Global News and has been doing incredible work reporting to all of our programs across the network from London. Ben, thank you. It's evening time for you. May I just ask you this out of the gate? What have the last number of days been like for you? You have a relationship with that city. You understand the city. What's it been like the last few days? Yeah, I have to say it's, it's, been, it's been wonderful in a strange way, given the circumstances. I think a lot of people have been struggling to find the words to describe something that is both somber and awesome all at once. And, and it has been, it's been a, f- a wonderful experience with people that you've met. There's been sort of a, a you know, a, a fraternity or a brotherhood or camaraderie, if you prefer, amongst people. Everyone's been very polite. People are sharing stories. When you're stuck in a line with someone, they talk to you. When you're today, I mean, there are just so many people here now. It feels like the crowds have grown exponentially this weekend. And, and, and you find yourself sort of stuck beside people, and all of a sudden you're chatting about something or, or talking about, about why you're there, what brought you there, where you're from, and so forth. So that aspect of it has been, has been really quite marvelous because I've spent a lot of time here, and it isn't always that way. Um, but in the past uh, five days since I arrived, or six days at this point, it's been, it's been truly a, a marvelous experience. I think everyone just understands they're watching a moment of history that will be remembered forever, and therefore people are, are, are awestruck by it at the same time they want to talk about it. So that part of it has been really, really the most magical part of being here this week. Yeah, you know, I was thinking that uh, when you were saying this, that the thought occurred yesterday that it really speaks to the mark of Queen Elizabeth. When people remembering her or meeting each other spontaneously in London now, the very best comes out of those people. They actually communicate with one another. There's warmth. There's an exchange of warmth in a possibly increasingly cynical world. It speaks to the warmth and the character of Queen Elizabeth. It certainly does. And, and you'll know that you know things in England right now, in Britain, there are political divisions. There are, you know, before this, there were lots of talk of a very tough winter ahead, of skyrocketing utility prices and affordability crisis and everyone's that's that's in the background there but for these last days it feels like the nation here at least has come together for the most part um, to bid farewell to someone that they all know gave of herself in a way that she had vowed back when she was 21 and then followed through for more than 70 years as monarch the sort of idea of duty and service and loyalty um, and i think it has indeed brought out the best in people this week here Ben, what have uh, our prominent Canadians in the delegation from this country been doing today? Yeah, I, I've bumped into a lot of them, actually. I spoke to, uh, to quite a few people today, former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. I saw former Prime Minister Stephen Harper was here, Paul Martin as well, Governor General, Governors General David Johnson, Michel Jean, uh, the head of the Assembly of First Nations, uh, I spoke to as well. Um, and, and they've been busy. I mean, the Prime Minister was busy today. He had meetings with the Prime Minister of Ukraine, with the Prime Minister of Australia. He went to meet Liz Truss at 10 Downing Street, the new British Prime Minister, for the first time. Um, and then there was a state event at Buckingham Palace this evening, or late in the afternoon, where Prince Charles, well, King Charles, I should say, I keep doing that, King Charles, um, welcomed everyone in from all the dignitaries who are there for, for a get-together. So it has been a busy day. There is some diplomacy going on. Obviously, the meeting with the Prime Minister of Ukraine 
the meeting with Liz Trust, the meeting with the Prime Minister of Australia. There's some diplomacy going on on the sidelines of all this, but uh, now I think everyone's really focused on tomorrow morning. And the doors open at 8 a.m. local time. Um, the IPs are meant to arrive at that point, and uh, the funeral will begin at 11 a.m. here in London. You uh, also have the opportunity to speak and interview, speak with and interview the Commonwealth Secretary General. Please share that. Yeah, I was interested. I mean, I, I thought of this earlier because, of course, the, you know, the Queen was a huge champion of the Commonwealth, and there will be questions about what happens now that she's gone. Uh, Prince Charles is already the head of that organization, has been since 2018. And then I realized that uh, Patricia Scotland, the Right Honorable Patricia Scotland, was actually going to be one of the few people reading at tomorrow's funeral. The Queen selected her, amongst others, to, uh, she, will, she will be there. Liz Truss will also read something, the Prime Minister. And I asked her about that, because I can't imagine what it would be like to have to stand up in front of a room full of 2,000 dignitaries and heads of state and millions, if not billions, watching around the world. And here's what she had to say. I've never done anything like this where someone I care for a great deal, who is one of the most magnificent women that this world has ever seen, will be there in the centre of the Abbey, and I will have been given by her one of the greatest privileges that anyone can be given, because I will get to speak the lesson while she is present and be part of celebrating her life before she is put finally to rest. And frankly, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, the emotions are really close to the surface, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, she was, uh, she it was a Zoom, she was wiping away a tear at the end. I mean, I think they were, first of all, they were close. They had met quite a few times. They had small gatherings together, just like you were talking about with your previous guest. And, um, you know, she was always very, she told, tells a wonderful story about how there was, you know, when there was trouble with, with Patricia Scullage, you know, as the head of the Commonwealth, there are the ups and downs of those positions, clearly, that she would get a note from the Queen saying, or, or the Queen had invited her to tea at Ascot, just to say, you know, you're doing a good job. Keep your head up. Um, and these are the little stories we've been hearing. I think you've been sharing a lot of good ones. These are the little stories we've been hearing, these anecdotes that we didn't necessarily know at the time. And now people are sharing them, and it gives you a different insight onto what kind of head of state she was, what kind of person she was, and her ability to reach out to people and you know, make them feel better, for instance. And it's, it's, it's been quite remarkable to hear all those stories uh, over the past few days. must be difficult for Britons to know that by tomorrow at this time, their nation and the leadership of their nation will be different, or, or at least the person at the head of the royal family will be different. And even though Brits have known Prince Charles for most of their lives as well, it will be different And uh, to have the multi-decade Prince of Wales as monarch. And I do exactly what you did a moment or two ago, Ben. I still say Prince Charles. Indeed. Everyone does. That's been one of the ironies here. Everyone catches themselves trying to you know, say king instead of prince. Um, you know, I, th- I think when this period of mourning is over and she's laid to rest, it will stray. I mean, I think tomorrow people are going to realize, and this sounds a bit trite, but they're going to realize the finality of it. Because this whole week feels like she's been here to be, you know, one can pay one's respects to her in person. But as of tomorrow night, and you're right, it will be it, a new, you know, all those, the, the crown jeweler will be there to take away her crown, um, you know, symbolizing the end of her reign. This will be very symbolic, and I think 
come Tuesday morning when England wakes up, Britain wakes up, the Commonwealth wakes up, we wake up to a new monarch, you know, he'll be under a lot of scrutiny after that. I mean, there's this, been this period of mourning where everyone has sort of taken a step back, allowed the family to mourn. Tomorrow is, uh, Patricia Scotland described tomorrow as a family funeral that will be watched by millions around the world. I thought that was very apt. Um, but come Tuesday morning, you know, his job of, of his reign really begins. And I imagine it's going to be under scrutiny. And, and he, you know, he's made some missteps in the past, and I gather he'll be under a lot of observation now. It's going to be a very stressful and difficult time for him as he continues to mourn, of course, the loss of his mother. Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev, is back with us on the program. Uh, Ukraine's military has experienced great success pushing back the Russian army in recent weeks, reclaiming thousands of square kilometers. And Putin is now threatening additional attacks. So what, what is the situation on the ground in Ukraine? And what does Ukraine need most? Germany, by the way, has refused to ship decommissioned Leopard battle tanks to Ukraine and is being heavily criticized for that decision. They have these battle tanks, which is supposedly state-of-the-art equipment, and they're not using them. They're decommissioned, and they're refusing to send them to Ukraine. Germany and Canada, unfortunately, together were involved in that issue of the releasing of the gas turbine to Germany. But, you know, I went to Putin in Russia for the pipeline, and guess what? Pipeline shut down. With no uh, no date when it's supposed to open again, and is there the likelihood that Mr. Putin will decide to freeze out Europe this winter by not providing any gas? Well, you've heard Professor Thierry Bro on this program talk about that and say, be ready for possibly two hours a day of blackouts in Europe if that happens, and perhaps worse. Yulia Kovalev is the Ukrainian ambassador to Canada. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? Thank you. And thank you for, for the regular opportunity to talk with you and your great audience. Well, it's our and, honor. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, and of course, like, it's a mixture of feelings. On the one side, as you already mentioned, for the last two weeks, uh, Ukrainian armed forces uh, get significant gains on the battlefield. So only within the two weeks, we liberated over 8,500 square kilometers of our territory in the northern east in the Kharkiv region. And I think it was a breakthrough, and it is a breakthrough. Um, and of course, it shows uh, to us and I think to, to everybody in the world that Ukrainian army is not only very capable to defend, uh, uh, but also is capable to push back Russian force. And of course, it's, uh, it gives, I think, very clear evidence for everybody the so-called biggest, second biggest army in the world is not so big and not so strong. But the horror, what we've all evidenced on the liberated territories that were occupied for uh, approximately six months, uh, it's a, another example what we all seen in Bucha and what we all seen in Nerpin. Just on Friday, the horrific evidence of over 440 civilians that were killed and tortured and the massive grave, graves were found uh, in the city of Izum uh, just a few days after the city was liberated. 
And the horror is that the people were like shot in the head. So uh, there, there was a family found man and woman and their six-year-old daughter, which were also killed and tortured. And this is a, a pain and horror. And, and I would say, personally, I don't understand what kind of the human beings those Russians and Russian soldiers are, because none of the human beings could be so cruel that just to kill the civilian families and just to torture the people. No, it's absolutely horrific. And while you were talking, I was thinking that uh, in January of this year, even though the threat of a Russian invasion loomed, but in January of this year, those very people, those very civilians, were tortured and murdered by the Russians, by the Russian military. We're really just planning on, on living their lives, getting through the winter, maybe enjoying summer, doing the kinds of things that we do here in this country. We, we, live, we live our lives. We look forward to the future. They were looking forward to the future, and look what's happened to them. And it's the sort of situation where the world has to stay together. The world has to stay unified against Putin and against his army and deliver very, very determined messaging and also provide your military with the equipment and the supplies that you need because you're showing us. You're showing all of us what courage, commitment, and dedication is all about. Ukraine is setting the bar for the rest of us. Um, yes, and I think since the, since the war started, since Russian invasion, full-scale invasion started in February 24th, I think we need everybody to understand that there are a lot of things that we have been taking for granted in our lives. Peace, security... The prosperous future of our children, uh, living just in the world, just freely traveling, in, in, enjoying and building our career. But this is all, and the world we are living in, and the world that many countries are happy to live in, it is based on some rules. And it is based on some order that countries after the Second World War agreed to live in. But when Russia just one early morning invaded Ukraine, it all has broken. And now it is, you know, the, the result of this war is much, is, has, has much greater impact on how we all will live the next decade. Because uh, we, we need to all together win, because this is the win for democracy and this is the win for rules-based order. Otherwise, any other crazy dictator can invade other countries. And to be frank, Russia is not so far away from Canada. What Ukrainian soldiers is now doing on the front line is, is actually uh, making Russian's army less and less capable. And we need to win this war so Russia could not threaten any other of their own neighbors. And of course, here, uh, you know, many, many people were asking me, what is the recipe of the uh, recent counterattack of uh, Ukrainian army? And the recipe is quite clear. This is the courage and the bravery of Ukrainian army, our men and women on the front line, and also the, the military support and the training support that we are, have, that we are given by our partners. And I think with this, this uh, counteroffensive operations, we show uh, that we can not only hold the line, uh, not only defense, but we are capable to retain back our territories 
And that's why, you know, we need more military support, more equipment to uh, to provide to Ukraine to win this war and to end up this war. Because many people around the world are already suffering from this war. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, in, the, in the meetings that Putin had with uh, President Xi of China, uh, the Chinese president, I mean, they made the um, the uh, necessary greetings and they said the, the sort of cooperative statements. But we also understand that Mr. Xi has been critical of, uh, of Putin and uh, has not been providing Putin with military supplies. And I would imagine that uh, Xi has concerns about Putin potentially if he's pushed by his hardliners in Moscow – to resort to um, to battlefield nuclear weapons. I want to ask you, Ambassador Kovalev, how concerned you are, how concerned your government is about Putin potentially using battlefield nukes, given the fact that we know that in Syria he already used chemical weapons against a civilian population. Actually, what we are seeing now and what many of these Russian propagandists and liars are saying, um, uh, they uh, Russian propaganda has big problems because... Uh, since Russian troops, and there are many videos and evidences where Russian soldiers were just stealing the bicycles in the civilian population in Kharkiv region just to uh, to try to run away um, uh, from Ukrainian soldiers and from Ukrainian territories. Uh, actually, after all these crimes that they even committed. So for Putin and for his and for Russian society, it is uh, it is very important to produce much more lies because... The people seeing that Russian army has been, you know, uh, uh, stolen off from these territories, but they need some arguments to keep this Russia propaganda. So we see that these people are just first lie came as uh, as they saw that this was the operational regrouping, which we all understand it's it's lying now. Uh, many of them are saying that Russia needs to hit the critical infrastructure in Ukraine. And for the last two weeks, there were missiles attacks on on the water dams and on the utility companies and electricity producers. So what what Russia's propaganda is doing now and what Russia uh, has been trying to do is to uh, destroy the infrastructure, like electricity, like water supply, like roads, like bridges, because otherwise they don't have any... Uh, other uh, tools and any other successes. So these are the the, uh, the the missiles which are coming 2,000 kilometers from Caspian Sea, from Russian territory, from Belarusian territory, and trying to hit the infrastructure. And that's why we are now talking with our partners and our allies to provide us more air uh, defense system to protect this infrastructure. And this winter will be hard. This winter will be especially hard for the people of Ukraine. You can just imagine 85,000 houses and department buildings were destroyed. So there is no place the people can live. There are many of the small towns where the water supply is destroyed, where there is no heating. It was the country with, with just, just imagine, it was a year ago, and the country was significantly, Ukraine was investing in renovation on infrastructure, building new energy efficient apartment buildings, and moving forward. Now, the city is 
small cities in Kharkiv region, as we see, are almost completely destroyed. And it will be, as you mentioned, very hard for Europe, because Russia is using not only like uh, weapons, propaganda, but Russia is using energy as a weapon to also try to influence on the Europeans, our European friends, and to blackmail Europe. Uh, But uh, we need to keep strong altogether. And I think this winter, this hard winter, uh, but we will definitely come through it. And it will make us all uh, together more stronger, more united. And that will be a clear clear evidence for the next decade that uh, Russia's ability to influence Europe, to blackmail and threaten through the energy, this is this this is will be broken this winter, yeah. and that is very important for each of us for the next years and decades. Yes, indeed. Um, how would you how would Ukraine describe its relationship with this country now? I know that President Zelensky had great concern when that gas turbine was shipped from Montreal to Putin via 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 Germany. How would you describe the relationships with Canada now? Canada has been for many years and is uh, one of our closest uh, allies and our closest partners. And relations between Ukraine and Canada actually have long, long uh, century of history far from the modern um, Ukraine's independence announcement. And actually, Canada was among the first countries uh, that recognized Ukrainian independence in 1991. But that is also one fact I think nobody knew that. But when in 1996, uh, Ukraine introduced our national currency, hryvnia, for the first year, this hryvnia was printed here in Canada. And that um, and Ukrainian constitution was written by many, uh, with the support of many Canadian experts. And of course, we have this big Ukrainian community uh, here in Canada, uh, and the, which is increasing because many of the Ukrainians fleeing the war are very, uh, very welcome, uh, welcomed here in Canada. And of course, like we are the partners, Canada is uh, supporting us a lot in this time, including with the financial support. And Canada is the second biggest uh, country uh, in G7, uh, providing us uh, with the financial support to to help uh, people to help the IDPs to provide uh, social payments for the people uh, during the war, and we do value it. And of course, Canada is providing the uh, military support. And but when the war is going on, since the war is going on, uh, we of course uh, need more more weapons to be supplied. And I think the last two weeks showed a very clear evidence uh, that it really makes a change. It really makes a change, not only for the military people who, who look on the maps of the war, but for many thousands and millions of Ukrainians who are still on the occupied territory. Yes. Because the horror of what we see is happening there and what Russians are doing, we just need to liberate the people to give them a chance to live. Yeah. It would be helpful, would it not, if Germany were to provide those leopard battle tanks? Uh, of course. And we'll, of course, it, it helps a lot for each and every our partner um, to be more generous. And sometimes, you know, the the countries are looking on, on their own stock. 
Yes. Uh, and, you know, what they're saying that it is not so big, we cannot give it. But let's be frank. We are now fighting for all of our partners. And giving us these weapons guarantee that none of the other countries will ever need to use this weapon on the battlefield. Yeah, you're fighting for us. You're fighting for yourself, but you're also fighting for us. Ambassador, the the death of Queen Elizabeth the uh, II, 70 years, more than 70 years, the monarch, head of state of this country, the only monarch that uh, most Canadians have known. What's what's your government's message to this country on the death of Queen Elizabeth? Um, first of all, uh, I would like to, to share our, from behalf of all of the Ukrainians, our sincere condolences for the Queen's part. Um, the Queen was a real leader and a real example to follow as uh, as a leader of the countries and the leader of the Commonwealth Commonwealth countries. And of course, Ukraine merged with uh, with the others. And today, our uh, First Lady of Ukraine, with uh, with Ukrainian Prime Minister, are also in UK. Uh, in the delegation to to pay the respect and. To, the last word to during the uh, ceremony of the Queen's Park. We agree with you, uh, the Queen, the Queen, Her Majesty was a real friend of Ukraine. She was supporting Ukraine. And that is, a, I think that is a, a big, big loss for all over the world. Let's talk about uh, what's going on in our justice system in this country. The Correctional Service, the Parole Board, as it relates to uh, releases of dangerous individuals, they know they're dangerous, let them out. And uh, Scott Newark is a former Alberta Crown Attorney, Senior Policy Advisor to a Federal Minister of Public Safety and the former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Scott and I have been talking about justice issues on the air for 30 plus years. And we both said, Scott, uh, over the last couple of months, that we have a similar concern, that the system seems to be sliding backward. Accountability, responsibility, um, is, if not taking a backseat, it certainly seems to be compromised. And when you look at what happened with uh, Constable Hong um, and the individual who shot and killed him, uh, this Petri, and I just want to quote from... Uh, I've got it here somewhere, what um, what our mutual friend Joel Warmington wrote. Here's, here's what he wrote, then I'll talk to you. Until this week, when he shot and killed Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong, it seemed the only thing Sean Petrie hadn't been charged with was murder. Possession of a firearm, robbery, sexual assault, child pornography, prostitution procuring, trafficking, impaired driving, and breaching bail conditions. Now authorities could add two counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted murder to his disturbing arrest record. That is if the 40-year-old wasn't shot and killed in Hamilton while trying to escape from the murderous mayhem he left behind in Mississauga and Milton, Ontario. One case, one person. What do you make of this? Well, he is a, when you delve down into it, and unfortunately, you have to do that in all these cases because the system isn't very good at uh, putting the truth up front. This is a guy who was you know, literally a career criminal, uh, and he had a long, long history of uh, crime, including, as uh, Joe uh, pointed out, breaching his release conditions. I don't think he was on any form of release. I say that with some hesitation because I haven't seen anything to the uh, to the contrary. 
but he's a demonstration of the reality of our justice system uh, that a disproportionately large amount of crime is committed by a disproportionately small number of offenders. And unfortunately, in the culture of the systems you described, whether it's the uh, the courts or the uh, corrections or uh, the parole system, we tend to just sort of look the other way. And that is, a, uh, I think, a, a terrible mistake. And as you say, uh, I think over the past, uh, you know, 10, 15 years, we've been making some, uh, some real progress on uh, targeting, you know, the high-risk and repeat offenders. Um, and it seems to be creeping back that it's, uh, you know, the institutional, we know best about everything. And uh, as, the, as, as a corrections officer once said at an inquest, the culture is GTO and KTO. Get them out and keep them out. Okay, so and unfortunately, that has significant public uh, impact, including with respect to police officers, because they're the ones we call on to, you know, ensure public safety. Yeah. And it also undermines, in my experience, it undermines public confidence in our criminal justice system. Well, let me just jump in here. Component. Let me just jump in here. You talk about public confidence. You recall that on a program. In the 90s, when Doug Walsh was on with both of us, the former assistant attorney general for the state of Washington, he said, if you have a justice system that people don't believe in, then you don't have a justice system. It's something that I will never forget. All right. So you talk about this Petri, and we don't know whether he was on release or not. But we do know that Miles Sanderson in Saskatchewan, we do know that Miles Sanderson was unlawfully at large. And uh, we also know from news reports that the RCMP apprehension unit wasn't really looking for him. Yeah. We That's had, disturbing. Uh, and look at what happened. Yeah. We had uh, discussed this, and as they, the news of this was uh, breaking, this is something that I must admit I wondered about because, you know, he was, you know, when they first released, oh, yeah, well, he was on, uh, there was a warrant out for his arrest. But it's an example of the systemic disconnect because the arrest warrant was issued, you know, by the corrections parole system, but they don't enforce it. It's up to the police agency to enforce it. And that's the RCMP. And it took, you know, a week or so to find out that, oh, well, actually, no, we weren't really, he wasn't any kind of a priority for us. We weren't really looking for him. Yeah. You know, like what? And why was this guy granted release in the first place? Once again, when you drill down into it, his record was unbelievable. And he had dozens and dozens of instances of, of uh, uh, breaching conditions. We don't know whether he was brought back in. Oh, and by the way, in Canada, breaching your parole conditions isn't a crime. It's a crime to breach your bail conditions. It's a crime to breach your probation conditions. But it's not a crime to, to breach your parole conditions. That doesn't make any sense. So let me ask you this, because this is important. And Scott and I met on my vacation. We've known each other for more than 30 years. We got together for luncheon. I was on my way to my destination, and Scott kindly drove a few miles to come and have lunch with me. Um, We talked about, and everything I know about Canadian justice, and I know a lot now is because of you, is what you taught me over the years. So here's the issue about Sanderson. Let's go back to him. Correctional Service Canada let him out. Statutory release. That was August of last year. 
So there's been report after report after report. I've seen them. You've seen them. Lots of people have seen them. That the law requires. Yeah. The law requires that a criminally convicted offender must be released after two-thirds sentence served. I see that time and time again. What's the truth? Uh, Not that. Okay, Section 129 of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act allows for a process. I think it's not a very good process, but for a process by which somebody can be, quote, detained and kept for their full sentence. Okay, and to see... You know, Roy, to see public officials putting out this falsehood is just, it's so discouraging because they either haven't got a clue about what they're talking about or they're actively trying to create this culture of deception that, you know, oh yeah, it's nobody's fault, you know, this just happens. And not only that, Roy, because of a case that you and I were both involved in of a career offender named Joe Fredericks who had... Again, been, you know, they used to use it, uh, the, the phrase as uh, blackmail. If you don't let me out early, I'll be really dangerous. So the people were being let out, and he abducted and raped and murdered a little 11-year-old boy, Christopher Stevenson. And the Ontario government held an inquest into it, and we got a whole bunch of information about the systemic dysfunction. And because we got the truth, we were actually able to start the process of changing laws. That's where the sex offender registry came from. It's what ultimately led to the changes to the system and that allowed for the creation of what are called preventive reconnaissances. And they're modeled on the old peace bonds that have been in our criminal code for, you know, centuries. But basically, if somebody presents a danger at a defined level, even though they're not charged with a crime, you can go to court, go through the legal process, and get an order with all of the conditions that could be in a bail order or a parole order, and breaching those conditions is a crime. And you can go to jail for up to four years. It includes even over the years we've in- improved it and modernized it, can allow for electronic monitoring, things like that that are really, really important public safety tools. Okay. Why wasn't that considered or used? Okay, let me just tell you this story. Eustachio Galles of Quebec killed his wife in 2004. He beat her to death. Beat and stabbed her to death. Sentenced to life in prison. After 15 years, he was paroled. And he was ordered not to get into relationships with women. Although the board, parole board, did grant Galles access to sex workers because they took into consideration his sex drive. Well, he met with a 22-year-old sex worker in Quebec City, and that young woman paid for her life, with her life, for the decision to release Galice, who is charged with her murder. This was just two years ago. Now, going on now is the story of Patrice Mayou from New Brunswick, who shot and killed a 16-year-old teenager in uh, the 1980s. He's unlawfully at large. He's breached his parole conditions. As Scott says, it's not a criminal offense in this country. So the sister of the victim released a photograph of Mayu, who killed her sister, on Facebook. Correctional Service Canada immediately contacted the sister and said, you have to take this down. You're not allowed to show the photograph of the individual. Meanwhile, the Correctional Service Canada wasn't sharing information publicly about Mayu. So, Scott, what do we got here? 
Well, um, first of all, it's a little uh, more uh, uh, detailed than than just that. Um, the whole point, the, the photograph was actually given to the sister by Correctional Services of Canada. And as you may recall, over the years in the the 90s and the 2000s, we made a series of changes to our laws because in the old days, when you and I first started talking about this, victims weren't allowed to have any information. They weren't allowed to go to parole hearings. They weren't allowed to speak. And so literally over the years, we've made a series of improvements, including these ones that are in Section 26 of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act that define a bunch of things that the Correctional Service of Canada shall release to victims if they ask for it or may release to victims if they ask for it. And one of them in Section 26.1D is about a photograph of the offender taken on the occurrence of the earliest of any of the following and any subsequent photograph of the offender taken by the service. Now listen to this. If in the commissioner's opinion to do so would not have a negative impact on the safety of the public. How the hell could releasing a killer who's in violation of his parole and having a warrant out for his arrest be contrary to or have a negative impact on the safety of the public? And my understanding is, as well, Roy, is that the photograph that was given to her actually came from a high-risk offender uh, uh, database that was Crime in the local area. So that's that's insane. And... The Privacy Act as well in Section 8, Subsection 2, Subsection M, which you and I have talked about before, I think it's the most important but hidden section, says that the head of the institu- a government institution can be disclosed for any purpose where in the opinion of the head of the institution, the public in- interest in disclosure clearly outweighs any invi- invasion of privacy that could result or disclosure would clearly benefit the individual to whom... Yeah, so Scott, Scott, if we just bring this down, down to the nuts and bolts, this guy killed a 16-year-old in the 80s. Her sister released this photograph, which started with Crime Stoppers and was delivered to her via CSC, Correction Service Canada. They then, when she posts the photograph on Facebook, say, oh, no, you can't do that. And because it's unfair, I suppose. It's unfair to the offender... That's the that's the thinking. It's the same thinking. You and I were on the air with a representative of Correctional Service Canada who said, and you know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. We haven't rehearsed this. What did that representative of Correctional Service Canada say? Well, essentially that uh, you were dealing with, uh, if you were talking about citizens, those are non-offenders living in the community. Non-convicted individuals living right. in the community. That's what the exact yeah. quote. That, that's what is so important here, Roy, because... This is the law. It's what they're supposed to be following. And our institutions are creeping back into, you know, do whatever the hell they want. They don't follow the law. And people may not understand all of the specifics of it and everything else, but this is what undermines public confidence. Okay? And the Sanderson case is another example. There's all these questions that need to be asked. And according to Minister Mendicino, oh, we're going to have the Correctional Service of Canada and the National Parole Board investigate themselves. Not good enough. People deserve better. You know, I did shows inside prisons with inmates' committees. I did a show inside Joyceville Prison with the inmate committee members. One was a convicted murderer. Actually, two of them were convicted murderers. One was a drug dealer. The other was a bank robber. 
And when we finished those, that, that live broadcast, and they took calls from our listeners, when we finished the live broadcast, our callers said they had more confidence in the individuals who were locked up than they did in the system. That spoke volumes. Now, we came a long way since those days. That was the early 90s. But now we're in a situation where we're asking questions, where we're, we want to know what's going on. And I find it really, and I'd forgotten this, but if you are in violation of your parole conditions, it's not a criminal act. That is disturbing. I've got a couple of seconds, 15 seconds. Go Wrap it up for us. Well, I was just going to say, I, I'm, a, I'm afraid that uh, when you look at the news, we're creeping back into those bad days of where crime is increasing, and a phenomenally important part of that is how the system deals or doesn't deal with this situation. Okay. And it has a huge impact on Canadians everywhere, and that's why it needs to be a priority. We're going to begin with my good friend, Ron Foxcroft, chairman of Fox 40 Industries, a member of the Order of Canada, honorary colonel of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders Regiment of Canada, based in Hamilton. And as many of you will remember, Corporal Nathan Cirillo, who was shot and killed at the National War Memorial in Ottawa in the terror assault in 2014, was a member of the Argyles. There was also a direct relationship between Queen Elizabeth and the regiment. The Queen was made Colonel of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders of Canada in the spring of 1950 by her father, then King George VI, while she was still a princess. Ron Foxcroft and uh, the commanding officer of the regiment were invited to visit Queen Elizabeth at her apartment at Buckingham Palace after the death of Corporal Cirillo. Ron, thank you, uh, thank you for joining us. I imagine uh, meeting the Queen uh, would rank very close, if not at the top, of your life's experiences. And how do you feel? What's your response, your reaction to her passing? Roy, you're very right. That's correct. It it does rank at the top. In other words, um, how how many of us Canadians get to meet in person Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth? In particular, um, she was the Colonel in Chief of our regiment, and at the time, I was the honorary Colonel of the Argyle Regiment. And and we all remember the uh, the tragic uh, killing of um, Corporal Nathan. Cirillo, and in particular, Roy, um, she was a very, very proud, very active um, member, colonel-in-chief of the uh, Argyle Regiment. And as you aptly pointed out, she was appointed colonel-in-chief of the Argyle Regiment in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, back when she was a princess in 1950. And she has continued that for 72 years uh, during during her reign as Queen Elizabeth. And, and yes, uh, Roy, it was uh, quite emotional. She reached out to us at the regiment, uh, to our um, colonel, uh, commanding officer, and requested that we, uh, Colonel Kennedy, the uh, honorary lieutenant colonel, our commanding officer, Lawrence Hatfield, and myself, go to Buckingham Palace so that she could express personally condolences to the um, uh, Cirillo family. Uh, of course, Marcus, uh, Nathan's son at the time, was uh, four years old, and, and now he's in grade eight. And, of course, Catherine, uh, Nathan's mother, and two sisters. So it was at her request, and we went out there. Um, and, Roy, 
the surprising thing, we thought the meeting, it was scheduled to be 10 minutes. We thought it would be in a conference room or, mm-hmm. or a boardroom or something like that. No, it was in her apartment. Can I ask you a question first before yes. you tell us about that? What is it like? What was it like when you were approaching Buckingham Palace and you know you're going to be meeting with the Queen, the Colonel-in-Chief of the regiment, and you're going to the seat of um, monarchy, and and you enter that building. What what was the what was the experience like? Roy, emotionally, your your legs are like spaghetti. You are very very nervous. We had been briefed by the equerry. The equerry is the equivalent to a uh, uh, shall we say colonel in chief uh, for the queen, chief of staff, and we had been briefed on the do's and don'ts of uh, what to do. Once we got to Buckingham Palace, we were put into a room with six ladies-in-waiting, and each one of the ladies-in-waiting had instructions for us, all the do's and don'ts when you meet the Queen. And, of course, it was scheduled for 12.10 p.m. noon, and we found out with the Queen, 12.10 noon means 12.10 noon, 12.09, not 12.11, but 12.10. And, and the one thing, the instruction that was consistent with the six ladies-in-waiting, don't touch the queen. I was the first into her apartment. She reached out to me with her hand to shake my hand. For a few seconds, Roy, I didn't know what to do. No. I had instructions from the ladies-in-waiting and the equerry, don't touch the queen. Yeah. I shook her hand. She looked at me and said... It's okay. She knew. <laughs> That's great. She was a very re- remarkable lady, Roy. Yes. Very, very intelligent. She knew that myself, Colonel Kennedy, Colonel Hatfield were nervous. And she had a resolve about her to calm our nerves and make us feel welcome. But, Roy, we're in her apartment, not a boardroom, not a conference room in her apartment with her piano, pictures of the family, her fireplace, and a little tiny desk to her right, and her beloved corgi dogs. That must have been just uh, almost surreal, having the opportunity to meet uh, the woman who's been the queen for all of your life uh, at that point. Yes. And and actually be there and have her have this d- deep and uh, deep caring about the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders Regiment and care deeply about the death of Corporal Cirillo. And to have that connection, have that direct connection to the Queen. Now, I can't imagine anything being I, – I, I shouldn't say that. I can imagine that it would be absolutely um, penetrating and emotional. It was. That's a good way to describe it, Roy. And everybody says, what did you talk about? Yeah, what well, did you talk about? The very first thing is she she was so intelligent and so remarkable. She knew an awful lot about the Cirillo family. In fact, she made reference to young Marcus and his age at four years of age. And she made reference that uh, uh, Nathan had two sisters. Uh, Nathan had a wonderful, loving mother that that uh, obviously Nathan loved his mother to death and and uh, she knew a lot also two other things Roy that we did talk about initially uh, obviously the first part of the conversation was about the Cirillo family about the Argyle regiment 
And she did communicate to us, and it was a just a wonderful feeling for Colonel Kennedy and Colonel Hatfield and myself. She said, you know, I am proud to be the Colonel-in-Chief of the Argyle Regiment from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And then she paused, and she said, you know, Colonels, the best-trained reservists in the world are Canadians. And she went on to say, I love Canadians, I love Canada, and Canada is my second home. Roy, we're in Her Majesty's apartment, and she's saying all those things about Canada. The other thing, Roy, once you address her, you address her as um, Your Majesty. From then on, you're supposed to say, ma'am. Well, I really slipped up, Roy. I couldn't call Queen Elizabeth anything but Her Majesty. I just couldn't call her ma'am because it just wasn't in It's not a thank you, ma'am moment, right? It's not what, thank you for the change. Thanks for showing me the direction. It's not a thank you, ma'am moment. This is, this is serious. This is really, really yeah. serious. So yeah. once we got through the business, she just turned and said, you know, and remember, Roy, I, I've, I've said this, we're in her apartment. And she said, you I know, that. Charlotte, my grandchild, my newly born grandchild is in the next room. And you know, Colonel, you should never wake up a sleeping baby. So, you were about to tell the story, and I want you to share it with us, because there's a big lawn, there's a tractor. What happened? Absolutely right. We we witnessed firsthand the Queen, Her Majesty's uh, sense of humor. We decided before we went there, we would send the Queen a gift. The equerry advised us it better be Canadian. So we decided on a framed four-foot poppy because her favorite flower is a poppy, and it was made out of red Fox 40 whistles, made in Canada, framed in Canada. And there it was, Roy, right on her easel, right beside her, to her left, and, of course, to her right were the corgi dogs. To which she said, tell us the story about the Fox 40 whistle, which we did. Then she turned to us, and this was a surprise, because, Roy, it was supposed to be a 10-minute audience, and it was just under an hour. Would you like to see my garden? And, oh, boy, were we surprised. Your Majesty, we'd love to see your garden. She opened her drapes, and there was this magnificent garden where she explained to us she was having a party tomorrow, a, a small party, and I said, Your Majesty, once again, a slippage, Roy, I should have said, ma'am, Your Majesty, how many people in the party? She said, 8,000. <laughs> and I said, I didn't know what to say because it was so magnificent, and Roy, yeah. we were taken aback, Colonel Kennedy and Colonel Hatfield and so on. And I, so I said, Your Majesty, and she had displayed that little sense of humor, Your Majesty, you've done a wonderful, marvelous job cutting your lawn. To which she said, Colonel, that's my John Deere right down there. I cut that corner for these precious corgi dogs. And you know, I was a mechanic in the, in the war. And then she turned and said, Colonel, did you bring those Canada geese to poop on my lawn? <laughs> to which, Roy, I quickly handed her a Argyle-logoed Fox 40 classic whistle, whistle, which she put in her mouth, 
and blew it and said, you know, this is better than a shotgun. <laughs> and then what Roy, a great he story. turned to Marie and said, where are you staying? And Marie said, the Goring. Well, the Goring Hotel is her favorite hotel. She has presented the Goring with a warrant. And she said, I'll see you tonight. I'll be coming there tonight to see the owner, Big Dave. And you'll be able to Google Big Dave, Roy, the owner of the Goring Hotel, because he is quite a very big person. And Her Majesty referred to the owner of the Goring Hotel as Big Dave. That was such a great story. And here you have the queen. The queen who's been... You know, the queen for seven, well, not, not at that point, not quite 70 years, but more than 60. And she has this sense of humor. You're, she's meeting you for the first time. And obviously, she felt comfortable with you and with the colonels uh, the, and with Marie. And, uh, and, and so did you bring the Canada geese? You give her the whistle. She blows the whistle. And that's her John Deere tractor. And nobody else is driving that, right? Nobody yes, else. Yes, Roy. And, you know, we thought the meeting would end with a timetable. It didn't. She said, this meeting is ending because I have to take my precious dogs out in the garden for, to, for them to do their business. That's how the meeting ended. First of all, we were shocked that we were in her apartment. Secondly, the dogs were there. She had the easel with her favorite uh, flower, the poppy, and it ended when she said, I must take my dogs out to the garden so they can do their business. I, I just think that that was such a marvelous story, such a great personal experience that you share, Fox, with, uh, with all of us, that, uh, about the Queen and about your visit to her apartment at uh, Buckingham Palace. We really needed a story like that. We really needed the human touch, the uh, example that you just provided, speaks so much about the, the, the person behind the office. And, man, it's, it's a, such a good story. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. She was a remarkable lady, and this is quite a sad and historic yes, it is. occasion. And I just hope that she gets a fitting send-off that Her Majesty deserves. It is a sad day. It is a sad time. But, again, Ron, hearing the story, I think, will provide a little bit of a lift, an emotional lift to people who are feeling you know, feeling sad and feeling perhaps somewhat depressed about about uh, the Queen uh, pass, passing. But what you shared with us is just such a such a wonderful story. Nobody who heard you say that tell the story will ever forget it. That's right, Roy, and she has captivated our respect. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.